What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Murtada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate. We are taking a break this week, and this is a special bonus episode as I have been living and breathing Sundance movies for the last seven days, six and a half days. Um, I couldn't think of any other movies, so I want you all to know what I've been watching. And I have invited a special guest, writer and critic, Valerie Complex. Hi, Valerie. What's up? Thank you for having me back. I remember our discussion about Little Fish. Yes, that was one of my favorite episodes when we discussed that little scene Australian movie. <laughs> people, people were shocked that I had even seen it, to be honest. And I get it. Like, I know it was a film that not too many people saw. So. Yeah. So we're not talking about a Kate Blanchett movie this week. We are talking about all the movies at Sundance. And mm-hmm. so Sundance this week, was, uh, this week. This year was a virtual festival. So we were all sitting wherever it is that we sit every day. We're all inside. And just there was an added bonus of watching these movies that just became available. Um, I have to give Sundance kudos for the virtual, the virtual experience was amazing. Literally, you two clicks and you're watching. Like, go to the movie favorite and it appears on your schedule. Then you click it and watch it. They cracked the code on virtual festivals. It's, I've been to many over the past year, and this was the best. Um, you know, it, it took a while to get used to at the beginning with films and stuff. And then I had complications with, for some reason, the films that I reserved kept dropping off my schedule. Hmm. And um, I had to email them like, what, what are you going to do? Because I have proof that I reserved these films, but they're not showing up on my schedule. So what's the problem? And then they ended up upgrading me to uh, all access. So that made it easier. Yeah. Yeah. This was my first year getting all access. I, I'm always, I always got the pass that you have to go an hour before the movie and wait in line. But this time I got the all access. So it was nice. Well, you deserve it. You produce, you know, you produce the amount of work that they're looking for. Yeah. Um, so you should be proud of that. I am. It was nice. The, the all access was very nice. But, you know, people are here to listen to us talk about the movies. So let's dive into the movies. And first, Valerie, I just wanted to talk about like trends that you notice in the, in the, um, uh, in the films that we watch. Obviously, this was a, uh, the number of movies were less than usual, but this is still a huge number of movies. Nobody has seen all, everything. So I think between us, we've seen probably a lot, but we still have, mm-hmm. we won't cover everything. But mm-hmm. my, my first trend that I noticed, and this is a trend that just every year at Sundance, I think it's the same, but maybe a slightly more noticeable this year is that the documentaries to me were much more interesting um, and better than the narrative movies. Um, like so many of the documentaries, there was innovation. We saw a documentary in animation. We saw a lot of good archival footage documentaries and even the talking head documentaries were good and there was things like captains of zapari and sabaya are these documentaries that were shot in iraq and in jordan that looked and felt like narrative movies because they just plunge you into the story there is no talking head telling you like that was to me that 
the innovation in documentary is something that I really noticed this year. I think, I don't know, this, I feel like that's a, it's ongoing with the trend that's been happening since last year. I felt a lot of the films that I saw and some of, the, some of them in my top 20 are documentaries. Actually, documentaries dominate my top 10 mm -hmm. uh, because they were just much better last year. They were riskier. Um, they told a variety of stories featuring a variety of different people. Um, and as Sund I think Sundance is just kind of continuing that tradition of where um, documentaries are just a lot better. And I know you mentioned this earlier, but I agree with you. I felt like a lot of American cinema was lazy. Um, it was the same sort of narratives over and over. There were a few movies where people tried to do different things with, form with typically formulaic uh, stories. Mm -hmm. um, violation, for example, um, and and even to an extent, a uh, plea, which you know plays with genre and stuff like that. Most of the the films were sort of kind of like middle of the road and not interesting at all. Yeah, I um, agree. The narrative films, especially the American narrative films, with very few ex for very few exceptions, everything was been there, done that. And I'll mention a couple since. We're not, you know, so, so let's get into a couple of them. So one movie that I enjoyed watching is Together Together, which is a movie directed by Nicole Beckwith. And this is, um, I don't know if you saw that. Did you get to see that? No, um, I will say that when I'm physically at Sundance, like I don't see very much. I think the most movies I'll see is maybe six or seven because that in between parties and other commitments, you mm -hmm. don't see that much, but this is the most I've ever seen at a film festival. How so many? About that. <laughs> happy that's great that, yeah I think I've, I've seen more this year than I've seen last year because you know you cut down the time of like going from one theater to the other and the bus right, right, shuttles right. and all of that and the right. parties and the um and then you can wake up and immediately watch a movie even at 8 a.m if you want right you don't have to like get up and, and wonder if you're going to miss the bus so I wanted to talk about this trend of like American movies of been there, done that. So one movie that was quite charming is Together Together. This is a movie directed by Nicole Beckwith. And it is a movie about a man in his mid forties who hires a younger woman to be a surrogate because he's single and wants to have, um, wants to have a child on his own. And it's about the friendship that sort of become, comes between these two. The movie was very charming. The performances by Ed Helms and particularly Patty Harrison were really mm -hmm. charming. But, and I laughed, but I also felt like this is the, the quintessential Sundance movie that I have seen a million times. <laughs> yeah. So there yeah, is- Every year, a Juno, yeah. um, every year. There, there is one every year. Um, and another one that I will highlight is also one called How It Ends. And this is directed by Zoe Lister-Jones and Daryl Wayne. And this <laughs> movie was, the this was such an LA story. Like I kept rolling my eyes. There's so many things, you know, <laughs> this movie. And it's just like, I'm like, well, good, good job, Sundance. You gave New Yorkers a new LA movie for us to mock. But right. again, it was fun. It was fleeting. I didn't want to turn it off. I enjoyed it. But like, what is, where are these movies going to go? Who is the audience for these been there, done that stories? Mm -hmm. So um, you know, but let's talk about stuff we liked. So we talked about the innovation in, in documentary. And I think my favorite movie at the festival was Flea. Mm -hmm. um, Probably mine too. 
Yeah, so Flea is a documentary told in animation and it is, um, it is directed, it's a Danish film. It's directed by Jonas Spor Rasmussen. Hopefully I got that right. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's a story. He's, he's a filmmaker who, when he was in high school, befriended um, a refugee from Afghanistan. His name is Amin. And, through, and this was about 20, 25 years ago when they were in high school. They are in, the, in their late 30s, early 40s right now. So, and throughout this whole time, they became best friends and they became good friends throughout the year. Amin never told his friend his story mm -hmm. about what, how he came from Kabul to Copenhagen and what was the journey that got him there. And so he finally told him the story. And so the filmmaker tells the story in animation and it's beautiful animation. It tells the story of you know, the, the civil war in, in Afghanistan and the journey that Amin and his family take through Russia, through, um, through being smuggled into Scandinavia and how they um, lost each other and found each other again. And how he, because of the oppressive immigration systems everywhere in Europe, even countries that welcome refugees more than America does, I assume Denmark does, they mm. also, their systems are still oppressive. So you can never tell your story because then that, any shred of truth can be taken against you. And so right. this, you know, as somebody who migrated myself, it just felt very personal um, to me. It's also a queer story. I mean, it's queer mm -hmm. and part of the narrative is coming to, uh, to accept that he's queer. It's something that he struggled with and wanted to be cured from and also how his family reacts to his being queer. So it just was a wonderful movie. Um, what did you think of it? I was, it was one of the films where I didn't want to fast forward, you know, because you have that <laughs> option, you know, being at home. And yeah. I was, wow, I, I, I sat all the way through that. I didn't like check my phone or anything like that. I was fully engaged in what was happening. It, 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 I really liked the fact that it played with, with genre. You have documentary animation that's a crossover that I don't think I've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. Maybe it exists, but it's a crossover that I haven't seen. And the story is, is, is compelling, but it's hopeful. You know, a lot of these refugee sort of stories end in tragedy most of the time. But this one is like, going, oh, everybody's alive and everybody's thriving. They're just scattered all over the place. That made me feel like, you know, it was a film that I walked away from feeling good yeah. um, based on the conclusion, not going through the rest of it, going through it. It was rough, but you really feel like you're there with the main character going through the same things that he's going through. Yeah. So it was definitely a uh, in your shoes moment. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot of just nostalgic 80s and 90s music, which is the time when Amin and his friend were young. So you get to hear mm -hmm. Aha and Roxette, a lot of these Scandinavian bands. So even right. the soundtrack was interesting. And the story is just poignant and beautiful. It's a story of family, of separation, of leaving behind everything because you have no other choice. Um, so it's heartbreaking, but there was a lot of joy in it. And um, I think it's a movie we're going to hear a lot about. I understand that. Yeah, um, Neon. Neon bought it? I yes, think. Neon bought it. And I think they're going to dub it in English with Riz Ahmed um, doing the, the narration. I mean, I don't think that's necessary, but okay. <laughs> I know. I mean, people can read the subtitles, right? They should just leave it in Danish. But yeah, people don't like reading, apparently. Yeah. So. 
yes. But anyway, Flea is definitely my favorite um, movie of the festival. And so if I thought as a fun exercise, as we're going, we could give our awards. So Flea is definitely my best documentary. What is your best documentary, Valerie? Uh, it's gonna be Flea. Yeah. Another movie that I wanted to mention is Captains of Zatari, which I mentioned earlier a little bit. This is a movie um, that follows two refugees in a, in a camp, Syrian refugees in a camp in Jordan. And mm -hmm. they get chosen to go on this uh, soccer, to play in the soccer championship in Qatar. And the, this movie, what I loved about it is that for so much of its running time, it plays like a narrative movie. And so nobody is talking to the camera. Nobody is telling me what is happening. There is no narration. It's just the director following these two young men as they grapple with their daily life on the soccer field, with their friends, with their family. One, one of their parents is sick. And as they travel and as their world, you know, goes, goes slightly bigger, like from there is, it, again, likely there is this note of hope in it. So their world is at first confined to this refugee camp and then, and then they are playing in this championship and you can see like the effect of, the, of how this world has expanded and how that affects their perspective. And I just loved this movie uh, and, um, and I thought it was also an innovative uh, documentary. So what other documentaries did you like? Oh, um, I thought Misha and the Wolves was kind of crazy. I haven't seen that one. So tell me what, what's that one about? It's basically about this woman who told this story about how her parents were killed um, in Nazi Germany. I mean, and, you know, during the occupation of, of the not Nazis um, in Belgium. And she told them that she went to go stay with a foster family and she didn't like the foster family. And so she went to live in the woods and she became part of a pack of wolves who took care of her for, uh, for however long. And then she met, uh, she came to the States and met this woman. And the woman was like, let's turn this into a book. Mm -hmm. And, they, you know, she wrote the book and it became a bestseller and they were going to go on Oprah. And um, she, she turned down going on Oprah about her book. Oh, wow. And her, her agent, she ended up suing her agent for whatever, for $24 million and won. <laughs> And her agent was like, this is not, something's not clicking. So they do some investigation on the story and yeah, some stuff comes up. I don't want to give it away. All right. Really and this movie is also going to be on Netflix, right? So people hopefully right. can see it soon. Yeah, um, it reminded me a little bit of Tiger King, but a little bit more co compact, uh, mm. more compelling, not mm -hmm. as trashy. But it has, it has quite a twist. Okay, well, I, I'll look forward to that when it comes. I'm, I'm going to look forward for the twist. I think a movie that we, you know, before we hit record, we were talking about that we both like The Summer of Soul. Um, and I just saw that last night. That was literally my last film of the festival. And I live, I have lived around, I have lived five blocks from the park where the festival happened for 20 years and never knew about that festival until I watched that documentary. It's embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. So just to, to give the listeners the idea, how, Summer of Soul is a documentary by um, Amir Questlove Thompson. That's his full name. You, know, you may know him as Questlove. And this is a documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival, which is a festival that happened in 1969 in Harlem that had um, the same year as Woodstock. But because it was event, 
by black people for black people, it was of course erased from history. So what he has is the archival footage of people like Sly and the Family Stone, Nina Simone, uh, a young, yeah, um, Nina was amazing. Stevie Wonder and yeah, all, yeah. Mavis Staples and the, you know, and Mahalia Jackson. So all this footage, and then there are people who were there 50 years ago. Some of them were very young. Uh, one of the people who talks there is, was six years old when that happened because it was more than 50 years ago. So he has all these people who were there talking about the feel of being in the crowd, of the fashion, of how they felt that day. And then he has the King, which is the footage of all these performances that right. For a long time, you just watched the whole set. Like, I think we watched the whole set of Nina Simone because it was three songs. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a wonderful, um, a wonderful documentary. I don't want to use like um, the terms that they sent you in their emails, but the email call it the euphoric documentary. And I think that is <laughs> the right word to use for it. Um, right. <laughs> so that was another documentary that we both enjoyed. Let's talk about some narratives. So if, if I was going to give an acting award, I would give Best Actor to Clifton Collins in Jockey. It's a movie about a jockey. It's basically a character study about this uh, man in his late middle age who was a jockey all his life, and now his body's sort of giving out and he can't ride anymore. And it's about his relationship with a younger jockey that he's mentoring. And it's about relationship with his boss in the mm -hmm. racetrack who is sort of his, it's not, she's not just his boss, she's his friend too, because they've worked together for a long time. And it is just wonderful to see um, an actor like Clifton Collins Jr., who you've seen in many movies, playing supporting roles, get the lead and such a great um, character for, to play. And he really sings his teeth in it and it's a wonderful performance. It's multi-layered, it's very quiet and it's a very physical performance in that you see the years and you see the wear and tear to his body just in the way he walks and moves. So Clifton Collins Jr., congratulations. Sundays with Kate gives you best actor at Sundance. Is he, is he Latinx or I, I know he gets cast as one a lot, but I don't. I think he is, yes. Um, he, it says his father is of German descent and his mother is of Mexican ancestry. Okay. According to Wikipedia. So Valerie, um, in the movies you saw, is there an actor you want to highlight? I got to give it to Daniel Kaluuya for um, Judas and the Black Messiah. Although the movie's lacking in a lot of areas, um, that he gives a magnetic performance. And it seems like every role that he's in, he just continues to get better and better and better. There's nothing that he can't do. Yeah, he's um, wonderful. He's exciting to watch. I don't know, he just has so much charisma and it's hard to look away. He's, he's pretty irresistible. You can't take your eyes off him. Yeah, and you know, he, um, he plays Fred Hampton in, in Judas and the Black Messiah, which is the story of the last few months in Fred Hampton's life and how he was murdered by the FBI. It's a, it's a hard movie to watch. I watch it before Sundance. So I didn't think of it as a Sundance movie, but yes, it did play there. And yeah, I agree with you. Daniel Kaluuya is amazing. And I think he got nominations at the Golden Globes and SAG. So hopefully he is being recognized for this performance. I've always mm -hmm. loved him. I thought he should have won the Oscar for Get Out, um, but maybe he'll win this year. He's got to win something because 
I don't I don't know. I can't think of a performance by a male, a supporting role. Is he supporting or best? I don't remember. He's playing and supporting. He's uh, okay. yeah. He's being yeah. run and supporting. No, no one, no one has done better. Yeah, I agree. Supporting role this year. You can't. It's unfathomable to think that anybody was better than than he was this year. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful performance, but it's also a performance that you know he shows you how magnetic Fred Hampton was, right? Like in in those scenes where he's giving the speeches, like you can feel him leap off the screen. I know this is like, I think that people say that's an easy thing to say, but it, it literally, you, you feel the strengths, the, the, the passion of, of this man. And, it's, and you're right, you can't take your eyes off him. He's really great in it. He's fantastic. So he wins mine. All right. But you know, this is a podcast about an actress. And I think most people here want to hear us talk about actresses. So let's talk about the movie that has actresses that I will give it best film, uh, best narrative film at this festival, which is Passing. It's a movie that stars Tessa Thompson and Bruce Nega as two light-skinned Black women in 1927 Harlem um, who pass as white. One of them, played by Tessa Thompson, is the lead character. She passes as white sometimes for convenience, like if she just wants to go to an all-white hotel and relax for a few minutes. The other, um, Claire, played by Ruth Nega, passes all the time. In fact, she is married to a white man who doesn't know that she's black. Yeah. And so the movie is about race. It's about identity. It's about the masks we put on and take off. It's about desire. These women are into each other um, as friends, but they also want to take, um, they also want to trade places sometimes. I think Irene, the Tessa Thompson character, admires the chutzpah and the chaos mm. uh, of the other woman and vice versa. I think Claire also admires that Irene is in, that Irene is satisfied with her lot in life and seems calm. And so there is a lot in, in, in this movie and a lot of it is left unsaid. Um, the script is very sparse. Um, I love that. I, I didn't need it to, it's like whenever there is a chance for it to tell us anything, it sort of holds back and does it. But the performances are wonderful, particularly Rusnaga, who mm -hmm. I'll give Best Actress because um, she is playing um, somebody who is a little unhinged because of the way that she's living, but she has such control as an actor. Like she drops her voice sometimes to make the point or she looks straight into the camera. And the way that she looks at the camera, you completely change every idea you thought you knew. You thought you knew this character or you thought you knew this story. And the way that she just looks straight at the camera, it completely changed that for me um, in a very pivotal scene later in the movie. And then um, I, I, I think it's a wonderful performance. What did you think of Passing, Valerie? Um, I would give it, I would definitely give that, give Ruth Nega Best Actress. I mean, she really, I said in my review, I'm looking for my review now. She bulldozes through each scene um, yeah. with that, what did I say? It was a, um, with chaotic, sedity energy. That's what I said. <laughs> she does. That is really good. Yeah. With a chaotic, sedity energy that just sort of bulldozes its way through every scene. She's irresistible. Like, I, I don't see how, even Tessa Thompson like didn't fall under her spell because she's so her performance is so sensual and intimate and 
alluring. Yeah, absolutely. She's just one of those actresses. Yeah. Where you like, she gets on screen and you like follow her throughout the scene and nothing else matters. Yeah. Um, You're afraid to look away in case she does a gesture that you miss. Like I was just transfixed. Yeah, it, exactly. It was, it was, it was a transfixing experience. And I was just like, I wanted to see passing again because I just want to see the scenes that she's in. Mm-hmm. And she translates so much on her face, like, I know the story, to me, the passing story is lacking in substance. I think it was a very spirited first try from Rebecca Hall. Um, and I think tech, as, a, as a director, technically, she has a very good eye for things. And she really thought of every detail down to the costuming, the set design, the, even the language that they spoke. Like she thought of everything. It was just that story. And I just think that for someone in her position, passing was a tall order. And I, and I sit and I wonder, I'm like, what would that have looked like if a black woman wrote it and Rebecca Hall directed it? Imagine the, the symbiotic relationship that mm-hmm. would, how much better the film would have been. Cause I gave it a B rating, mm-hmm. but um, Ruth Mega, man, like at the end, I just want to talk about the end scene. When blank comes through the door, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And she gives Tessa Thompson, whose character's name is Irene, this look. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, so she basically gave her a look of forgiveness, even though she doesn't know why that person is there. Uh-huh. She looks at Irene like, I forgive you despite what's going on, mm-hmm. even though it's not Irene's fault. Mm-hmm. And it was just that scene, that glance, that look between them that I was like, wow, okay, so this is mind-blowing. And that's why I wrote that tweet. I was like, she's about to ride this to an Oscar. Yeah. She's yeah. wonderful. Like, that's the look I was talking about, too. That look. And then the thing is, she's looking at Irene, but in fact, she's looking straight at the camera. So she's looking at the audience. Mm-hmm. And so it's so... Like, I thought about it because then something happens and the movie ends. And to me, this is why the ending is so strong. It's because of that look, because of Rusnega, because you can read it so many ways. Like you said, you, it can be forgiveness. She's forgiving Irene. Or it can be like about what happens next. This is maybe the moment she decided to do something. So mm-hmm. it could be so many things. And this is why this performance is just so staggering. Um, um, I wanted to ask you, um, did you think that do you think this is a queer movie? I did think it's a queer movie. Um, I have read the book that it's based on. So the sort of desire and sexual subtext is in the book. Um, it's, um, but I think it, be- it becomes more apparent in the movie because of the performances. Because every time these women look at each other, there is fleeting touches here and there. It is not explicit at all. But the way Tessa Thompson and especially Rusnega look at each other, there is a lot there. You can see it as, which is why I, I, I love the ambiguity in the movie. You can see it as these women wanna, want each other's life. So something like, you know, I want to be you or, you know, do you want to be me? Or you could see it as sexual desire. And I think there is a lot, a lot of the time I felt, I felt the desire that they have for each other. And it's like the way that that Rebecca Hall sort of films it. I mean, it's absolutely shot and acted from the female gaze. 
Mm -hmm. um, in that one scene where they're at the party and you see the camera panning down her backless dress, um, Claire's backless dress, and then she grabs her hand and it's like, okay, well, I mean, this is, it's pretty clear mm -hmm. um, that either something did happen between them or something is sort of brewing between them. And it was, again, that look that they sort of gave to one another. But as a film goes on, the female gaze becomes really violent. And I think that that's important, an important thing that people don't are not talking about um, as much as they should be. Um, and how, you know, not every queer film is going to be Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And mm -hmm. sometimes the gaze is super aggressive and, and egregious. Mm -hmm. And I think Rebecca Hall kind of gets that point across. Like what happens when two women look at each other in a very violent and almost and, and an almost objectifying way. Mm -hmm. um, what are the results of that? So I really, that was one of the aspects I really did like about mm -hmm. the film. Yeah. Um, that it shows another side of the female gaze that uh, isn't often pointed out. And I love what you said about it being a violent look, because sometimes I was like, do you want to fuck her or do you want to kill her? And it could be both. It could be both, right. <laughs> yeah. Because right. the movie also, like, I think, um, I don't know if you saw the Q&A, but Rebecca Hall talked about being inspired by Hitchcock, which I'm like, every filmmaker is, Rebecca, not just you. But there is a <laughs> lot... <laughs> There is, there is a, there is a little bit of Hitchcock in there, in the way that these women maybe want to change places, and they don't. There, there is no way for them to change places except if they remove one, one of them, right? So there is that definitely, and you see it also in the relationship, the intimate relationship that the Rusnecka character builds with Irene's husband, played by Andre Holland which we never see because the movie always follows Irene's perspective. So it's, she's always coming into the room and seeing Andre and Ruth in mm -hmm. these intimate situations where they're whispering into each other's ears and they're sometimes not touching, but they're very close physically to each other. And we never sort of get beyond that, but you could read that as Claire trying to make Irene jealous because she desires her by showing her that maybe she desires her husband, or you could, you could see it as maybe Claire trying to take Irene's place. And yeah, and in both cases, to you your could, point, it's violent. You, but you could also see it as that's Irene seeing what she wants to see. She's not a terribly reliable narrator. Mm. I, at least I don't think so. Yeah. And it's like, and I think that that's also a kind of cool point that uh, Rebecca Hall does is creating this thing where we, we don't know. We, I mean, because she's at by that point she's so obsessed with with claire we don't know what the truth is yeah and i the only way i was able to sort of gauge what was happening there was at the end when they were going up the stairs to the party and um claire said something like i'm gonna you know she's like well what if your husband finds out and she's like well i'll just move up to harlem and be with you and i was like i i, think, I felt like she meant that like mm -hmm. be with her specifically yeah not the husband I, I yeah don't, mm -hmm. i don't know everybody interprets that different, different. Yeah. and that's why i love the movie because you know you can have your whole experience with it and see things and it, like you and i um both saw this sexual subtext but a lot of people didn't huh yeah, i know 
<laughs> you have to be like gay to see that because like um, it was pretty obvious i i thought yeah to me too but i just i i haven't read any reviews but um just looking at twitter some people were saying they didn't notice that so uh, and i'm just like you know this this is why this movie like needs to be seen like you need to pay attention and not to what the actors are saying but to the performances they're giving yeah there's a lot of answers there you gotta be looking yeah exactly so it's definitely my favorite narrative film. Um, and we both give Rusnega, act, actress of Sundance, yeah. and maybe actress of the year, I don't know. Is, is, will there ever be a better performance in 2021? I doubt it. I, have to say, I really don't think so. I really <laughs> doubt it. Um, not, they would be best to put her in a supporting category though. That's my yeah. question. I mean, she is, you know, the movie is from the Tessa Thompson perspective and she's not in it as much as Tessa Thompson, who's in every scene. Right, right, right. Um, my favorite narrative film, I unfortunately don't have one because I thought everything was pretty middle of the road um, with the exceptions of a few that I just didn't like at all. Um, everything was pretty... Mediocre. <laughs> yes! And, you know, like we talked about in the beginning, everything was sort of like formulaic and, you know, like Coda, for example, like I thought Coda was, was cute. Um, you know, I thought the lead actress has a very pretty voice, mm -hmm. um, but been there, done that. And they're just sort of death, death. And I think the representation is good, is there. Mm -hmm. um, I think the representation is accurate and solid. Um, I just didn't feel what everybody else was feeling. Same with math. Yeah, um, I want to say about Coda, like, what was the jury thinking? Like, there were 20 movies, maybe, in the U.S. Dramatic Competition, and you give every award to Coda? Did you finish any other movie? <laughs> <laughs> so, Coda is cute, and to your point, we love the representation, but it's really a sort of movie that is just about making the audience feel good which i get it it won the audience award why does it need to win writing directing and acting um it was just too much and also it's one of those movies that sort of neatly fixes everything all the problems it introduces in act one are neatly fixed and resolved by act three and that's always like life is not like that but mm -hmm. i guess it's not life it's a movie but in the end, it has two strong scenes, I thought, and maybe that's all it needed because those scenes really move you. And I think we were talking before we got on mic that... Um, is, it the, that is it the scene when she was singing for her father? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very moving and I teared up too. It's, it's yeah. moving. And yes, that's where you hook the audience. Absolutely. So I get winning the audience award, but the rest, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't, whatever. I don't get it either. I just um, want to see films like that as like, what what is different like where's the real conflict there's stakes but they're not high stakes because this is a rather privileged child so if she doesn't go to school right now she'll go later yeah. and her life will still be fine I, I don't know whatever moving on yeah well coda i think a lot of people are going to enjoy it's going to be on apple um so it's it's a cute movie um, the other movie that people seem to have flipped over for is completely different than Code 8. It's not an audience-pleasing movie at all. It's mass. And this is a movie about two sets of parents um, who are involved in 
their kids were involved in a school shooting. So one set of parents are the parents of the killer and the other two are the parents of one of the people who, one of the young people who died in the school shooting. And so they meet in a church basement to talk years after that, years after their, that tragedy happened and to sort of iron out differences, come to some forgiveness, reconciliation. It's, it's a movie to me that was, it's brutal psychologically because of the, of the, the subject matter and the actors are committed. Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton, Ann Dowd, and Bob Burney, all four mm. actors are really committed. But I was just, it left me really cold for two reasons. One, I thought that there were no characters here. They were just four archetypes. Angry dad, angry mom, asshole dad, and Ann Dowd. <laughs> asshole dad and Ann Dowd. <laughs> So, okay, like the actors are good, but did you write them any characters? I didn't think that um, Fran Kranz, who's the writer-director, um, did that at all. And then also I was troubled by the ending because it, again, it neatly, and I'm going to spoil here, so skip 30 seconds if you don't want to know what happens. There is a hug. And I'm just like, if your son killed my son, I'm not hugging you. Like that is never going to happen. I may forgive you, but I'm not going to hug you like that. And especially the woman played by Martha Plimpton, that woman would not hug and out never. So that really troubled me. <laughs> like I said, and out doesn't miss. No, uh, she does not have a bad performance. So if I had to say like, you know, a runner up to Bruce mega, it would be and out. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it seems like she did most of the talking. She is the film. Yeah, she, she has a different, she was on a different rhythm than the other actors and that character probably would be on a different rhythm because she's mm -hmm. the one who sort of feels the tragedy, um, who sort of feels a lot of things, like she feels guilt and she feels remorse and she, she is the one, like unlike her husband who kind of do doesn't want to take responsibility, she's taking responsibility for the fact that she raised this person who then killed all these other people. Um, so, so yeah, I agree, but I, I want to give this, film my award for when great acting is not enough <laughs> <laughs> the great acting not enough award <laughs> yes um, and so i want to end valerie by talking about movies that surprised us so is there a movie at sundance that you watch that you had no expectations or you had maybe expectations that were completely turned around when you watched it and it was surprising to you uh, besides Flea, I gotta say Violation. Um, it's, you know, it's another sort of middle of the road film that I would definitely give a, a, a B or B minus. But the way that it's a formulate story told in a nonlinear way. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to the ending, you're like, oh shit. You're just like, whoa. <laughs> did not see that coming because it has a pretty electrifying third act that manages to save the film because yeah. the first act is pretty good and then the second act is long and it drags but by the time it hits that third act things go 180 degrees left and you're like wow mm -hmm. where did that come from exactly so i was really really surprised about how much 
I like that. Um, yeah, I liked it too. So Violation, if, if you haven't heard of, it's a movie about two groups, uh, two sisters and their significant others. I think one couple is married and the other isn't. Um, and so going to a weekend together and something happens between one of the sisters and the husband of her sister and the repercussions from that, um, which become, which sort of takes a toll on both couples. And we are then taken to maybe a year later or six months later, any some time has passed. And one of the sisters is exacting revenge on what transpired that night. And it is, and it starts in the middle and it goes back and forth and you're never sure which timeline you're at or what you're doing. Um, it's, it's a debut movie and I think those directors really showed what they could do as directors. Mm -hmm. Although what I would say about it is that it felt to me like it's a real for a new director. Like there was a lot of flourishes to the direction mm -hmm. and there's a lot of cutting to insects and animals. And, and so it, it's something, you know, a first time director should maybe avoid that. I think, I think it was, I wasn't as immersed into the story because I felt that the directors were showing off a little bit, a lot, a lot of the time. Yeah, and I always think showing off comes off as amateur, um, in my personal opinion. And it takes it like it takes you out of the story. It takes you out, and then you got to get back into it. And as soon as you get mm -hmm. back into it, there goes something else. However, I guess I see what they were trying to do. Um, violation is supposed to be surrealist. In a, in a in a way, shape, or form, um, I felt like I was watching a Salvatore Dali movie. Uh, just like all these shots were sort of thrown together and um, with no with no uh, goal in mm -hmm. mind. Um, so I see what they were trying to do. It wasn't necessarily effective. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. For my surprise, I would say is the movie Pleasure, which is a Swedish movie about. Um, a sex worker who arrives in LA and she's trying to, she's trying to break into porn. And what was surprising about this movie is I didn't know about it at all. And I just clicked on it because of the premise. And I was like, oh, this might be interesting. And because I wanted to see more non-American movies. Mm -hmm. And so what I, it was such an honest depiction of that journey. And I thought mm -hmm. the actress, I think her name is Sophia. Ooh, let me, yeah. let me Sophia what Capel? Yeah. Sophia Capel was really good. Like if there is another performance other than Bruce Negan and Daniel Kelly and Clifton Collins Jr., I would say she she was really wonderful. And the movie is very like it's it's really struck me. The honesty of depicting that journey really struck me. And it is it was very surprising. I think pleasure was so real and honest that sometimes I forgot I was watching a narrative film. Mm. I kept, I had to keep checking myself because I'm like, is this a fucking documentary? Like, what is going on? Well, I was like, where is, where does real end and fake begin? Like, where, because, um, you know, I, I saw people who I noticed and I, I just wasn't sure. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that are sex workers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I thought that the, pic, the, the depiction was true to scale. Um, the only thing that confused me was the ending. But then I figured it out. So I was like, okay, well, yeah. I mean, this is a cool way to end it. Like the music was great. Like it was a very millennial film. I don't know. I, it doesn't, I feel like it glorifies the porn industry and then 
demonizes it at the same time, which I thought was a pretty decent balance because there are people who enjoy it and there are people mm -hmm. who don't enjoy it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And um, I think, and I get what you were saying about, is this a documentary, is it narrative? Because it's populated with a lot of porn actors who yeah. are playing most, a lot of the other characters that she meets in during this time that she spends in LA. Right, right. Um, it's a rough business. It is, it's very mm -hmm. rough. And the movie doesn't shy away from that. But that act, like, I had to ask, because I was like, are you a porn star? Like, I wasn't sure. <laughs> I asked uh, Sophia Coppola. She was like, I am not. She was like, thank you for the kind words. I was like, oh, child, I'm embarrassed. But I had to ask. Where did you ask it? Was this at the Q&A? No, this was on Twitter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this was on Twitter. I was like, hey, I, I, I even, like, untagged her from the question. And I was like, is she a porn star? I had asked somebody else, and she saw it. And I was like, oh, girl, I'm embarrassed, but I had to ask. Yeah. Well, she was good. She convinced you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's very convincing. And and her performance kind of reminded me of um, Bria. I think her name is Bria Vinite. Yes. From the Sean the Baker movie. Yeah. yeah. From the Florida Project. The Florida and, Project. Uh, you know, in that sort of, you know, fledgling new actress eccentric mm -hmm. tattoos and, and, and a way of speech and being that is all their own. Mm -hmm. um, but it fits within the sense of the story. I, I don't know. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. It, yeah. I enjoyed it too. Um, so is there any movie that we haven't talked about that you want to mention before we go, Valerie? Um, I want to talk about, let's talk about some bad ones. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> I don't know what happened. In the Earth is, is terrible. I, I I really like. Is that, that the Ben Weekly movie? Yeah, I really like the fact that <laughs> there was a brown woman who was a hero, mm. but Wheatley has been on a lose a long losing streak, and yeah. I don't know. Like I thought the film was all over the place, even for him. Oh because wow! I liked his first film, The Killing uh, List, The Kill List. I liked High Rise. Um, I've liked some of the films he's produced. Mm -hmm. I thought Free Fire was okay, but he's been on a, a losing streak. Um, Rebecca was bad. Oh God, um, yes. The worst <laughs> movie ever. And that's why I didn't even try to watch this because I'm like, you burnt me very recently, Ben Wheatley. I am not watching this. <laughs> I just, you know, I hadn't seen Rebecca. I'd heard all the bad things. So I was just like, whatever. But I know he does horror semi-well. But it was just like this weird mashup of annihilation and the happening, and it just didn't it didn't work, and it was way too long. But I really did like the fact that a brown woman was in the lead, and that's why it didn't get an F; it got a D. Okay. <laughs> um, did you see John in the Hall? No. Uh -uh. That was the worst movie at Sundance. Don't see it. I don't even want to waste my time on it. <laughs> I don't know what is John or what he was doing in the hole. It's about this young man, a boy who finds a hole in the backyard and then decides that he, he's had it with his parents and sister and drugs them and puts them in the hole. And that's it. It's the worst movie at Sundance. I don't even want to say more about it. I guess if I had to describe In the Earth, In the Earth is like this pandemic-esque film 
there's a pandemic going on and they're all wearing masks and then they get into the woods and they meet this guy and plants are communicating with that. It's just, it makes no sense. It's stupid. So um, I recommend skipping that. Um, I really didn't like um, Son of Monarchs. Mm. Uh, But I also, I've chalked it up to, I don't think the film is for me. And that's fine. Um, This is the movie about a scientist, a Mexican scientist in New York and sort of, he doesn't belong in New York, but he also doesn't belong back with his family in Mexico. Is that, that's the one, right? right, I've seen it, yeah. It didn't, it felt like it was trying to capture that Roma uh, um, and uh, what was that other film that came out last year? The queer Mexican one. You're always with me. I carry you with me. I carry you with me. And it feels like it was trying to like capitalize on that. And it just didn't, it just didn't really work. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then when, with the appearance of his girlfriend, it just really took me out the film and I just really wasn't interested in it. Um, I yeah. thought that super great storytelling. I thought the editing was all over the place. Um, it seemed really amateur. Yeah, the rhythm of it also wasn't engaging. Like, I don't think... Like, I think your point about the editing is spot on because it didn't engage you to like continue to pay attention to the story because it was kind of languid and it was kind of all over the place. So it needed to be tighter. The World to Come. um, Okay, that's not a film I dislike. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was pretty middle of the road though. Um, You can tell that it was written by men and... um, so this is the Mona Fastold movie. Um, Another from, period lesbian piece. Mm-hmm, with um, Vanessa Kirby and Catherine Watterson. Um, I think Catherine Watterson gives a career best performance. Um, I think Vanessa Kirby is great. Um, but a lot of people, I think a lot of people purposely skipped it because Casey Affleck is involved. Mm-hmm. So that's going to hurt the film, which sucks because I think people should see it. Yeah. Um, just for its romantic bits. But I gave it a B minus because I just I just didn't like the third act. I thought the third act was bad. So mm-hmm. um, I thought the filmmaking was pretty good. Like it's the filmmaking it's, is great. Yeah, it's like she's she's a good filmmaker. Like she she she's a good storyteller. Like this was one of the movies that um, I was like, oh, this is somebody I want to. This is a director I'm going to see their next movie for sure. And I just I wonder if would it would have looked like if a woman wrote it, you know, mm-hmm. or if a woman collaborated with the other two writers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but since it doesn't seem like there was any input from a woman, the film turned out exactly like I thought it would. Um, what, when you say that, what do you mean? Um, two characters tortured under the weight of patriarchy. Mm, yeah. It's like, we yes. see that all the time, I get it. Yeah, we, we, we know it, yes. <laughs> yes. And it's like, you know, and then the ending, it was just whatever. Um, I would say like the filmmakers who risked something, who told stories that maybe were risky or tried something different, like Passing, like Flea, Mm -hmm. like Summer of Soul. Those were all, you know, looking at archival footage, looking at a novel from the 20s, looking at a story set in... Um, a land you've never been to and then telling it in animation. These are all risks that these filmmakers took and in the stories that they chose to tell. So, and then I think that 
that those movies were the ones that were interesting. No, you know, and your mileage may vary about which one is, is better than the other. But it's the filmmakers who look just inwardly. I'm an actor in LA. I'm going to tell a story about LA people during a pandemic. Those were the movies that, that didn't work for me, that were too familiar, that you needed to maybe look at a bigger world than just your world. And that, that, that would pay off as it paid off for these other filmmakers. Carlos Aguilar is the one who, like, he continually pushes international cinema. You push international cinema. So it encouraged me to look more at international cinema and documentary. And, uh, you know, I saw quite a bit of foreign cinema uh, that I thought was really cool. Yeah. Um, The foreign films that I saw were a lot better than the English narratives. But I'm glad, you know, it's Sundance. A film festival is always good because you get to see what's coming up. And so I, I'm glad we got this opportunity to watch all these movies. And I'm glad Sundance made it so easy. Hope you enjoyed this episode about Sundance. Um, if I would say one movie, you got to put Passing and Flea, that's two, but that's okay. Valerie, if our listeners want to see one movie from Sundance, what would be your choice? I think it's important to see Summer of Soul. Summer of Soul. Um, because... I love Flea, but nobody knew about Summer of Soul. Like yeah. no, like hardly anybody knew about it, except for the people that were there. Yeah. Um, and so I think for learning purposes, education, a bit of Black history, Summer of Soul is probably what you should see. Yeah. And what a way to end on that movie. I, it hasn't been bought yet, but I think it will be, and we will hear soon where it will land. And it up. Yeah, I think that the market is a little bit slow, but it will pick up. I'm sure this one, it's so, it's such an audience movie too. Like people, it's, it's going to be picked up. So Valerie, before we go, tell our listeners where they can find you and your work. Uh, you can find me, uh, I have a website, which is ValerieComplex.com, ValerieComplex.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter at ValerieComplex and Instagram at Valerie underscore complex. Thank you, Valerie. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. I will be back to regular programming with another Kate Blanchett movie next time. Thank you so much for listening.